910 Ministries podcast, No Trash, Just Truth, with hosts Chris Paxson and Rose Spiller. At Proverbs 910 Ministries, we are dedicated to taking out the trash of false teaching and replacing it with biblical truth. Welcome back, everyone, to part two of our new series, Deciphering Revelation. We left off last time after taking a look at the first three verses of Revelation chapter one. So today we'll start with verses four to eight. I'll read them. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Amen to that. So, Rose, John starts with a greeting here. And verse 4 says that this book is for the seven churches in Asia. This is kind of like a pastoral letter of concern to seven churches in that time in history, and they're going to be specifically named later. The letter's going to address how they're faring spiritually and what's going on in each of them, good and bad. But this isn't just about these specific seven churches. Rose, we talked about the number seven a little bit in the last episode. We did, and we said that the number seven is used in the Bible to mean perfection or perfect completeness. So Jesus's selection of these seven churches to have John address is actually symbolizing the whole church for all time. It is. In verse one and later in chapter 22, we see this is Jesus's revelation that was given to him by the Father, and Jesus gave it to John through an angel. John goes on in Revelation 1-4 with the greeting, from him who is and who was and who is to come, God eternal, and the seven spirits who are before his throne, which is the Holy Spirit. Now, the Holy Spirit's one person, but is presented here as the seven spirits, and later in other ways using the number seven, which means perfection or perfect completeness. And which spirit is more perfect and complete than the Holy Spirit? Absolutely. Then it goes on that to say that this letter is from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, So John's greeting comes from all three persons of the Trinity. It does. So this is like a pastoral letter of concern, but the book's also apocalyptic. Apocalyptic literature was used to comfort people in times of trouble. It was. And John starts in verse 5 by reminding these persecuted congregants that Jesus is firstborn of the dead, meaning he's triumphed over death and that he's sovereign over all earthly powers. No earthly kingdom is ever, nor ever will be, out of God's complete sovereign rule. (laughs) That's a comforting thought right now. (laughs) Yeah, I'll say. And John goes even further than that, though. He reminds them who they are and what Jesus has done for them. Then he gives Jesus praise for what he's done, and he announces Jesus' second coming. In verse 7, the word behold is telling us this is something we should be watching for expectantly. Not that it's going to happen right now or even in the very near future, but we should be watching joyfully with anticipation. Then it says, every eye will see him and all tribes of the earth will wail or mourn because of it. 
Chris, most scholars consider this wailing is to be the wailing of the unsaved. It's the reaction to the coming judgment and the wrath that they realize they're about to suffer. Verse 8 is pretty self-explanatory. It's Jesus declaring who he is. Yes, and I'm going to go on now reading Revelation 1, 9 to 11. It says, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and Thyatira and Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. These verses are John starting the body of the letter, telling who he is, where he was when he was given the revelation, and why he was there. He was under persecution for witnessing about Jesus. And the seven churches who it's addressed to are listed. You know, we said this in part one, but I think it's important to note again that John was under persecution himself. He was exiled on an island after they had tried to boil him in oil. So if Revelation was primarily about the future, like the Left Behind series wants us to believe, wouldn't John have wondered about the persecution that was going on then and the significance of the revelation to that? And if this was about stuff that was all in the past, like the fall of Jerusalem, then what significance would this book have for the church today or between then and now? Yeah, I totally agree with you. It changes everything how you interp- about how you interpret this book. So let's read on from verse 12 to 16. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw the seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed in a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held the seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. A lot of symbolism starting here. Yeah. In John's first vision, we see that Jesus is present with his church. The seven lampstands represent the seven churches, which represent the church for all time. And this is reiterated in Revelation one twenty. And Jesus is right there in their midst. We don't have time to go into the individual parts of the description of him listed here, most of which is pulled from Ezekiel. But we know that this is Jesus and not an angel or any other created being because he says so in verse 17. Remember, this book is largely meant to comfort people who are under harsh persecution. What's more comforting than having Jesus with us when we're going through difficult times? Amen to that. And again, very relevant right now. So let's read the rest of chapter one, starting at verse 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. 
Here are more comforting words for persecuted people about Jesus being raised to life. But let's talk about what the keys of death in Hades are and what the things that are and those that take place after this mean. Well, we know that Jesus holds the power over death. No one took Jesus's own life from him. John 10, 18 says, no one takes it from me. This is Jesus talking, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. And we know that he rose from the dead and is alive today. So I would say that's power over death. It definitely is. And we know that he has the power to take life, as with Ananias and Sapphira. And he has the power to raise people to life, as with Jeru's daughter, the widow's son, and more. There's no doubt that Jesus has power and authority over death. None. Now, the key to Hades, and in some versions it says hell, could mean the grave, stating again that he has power over life and death, or it could be the keys to hell, where Satan and his dominions, as well as the wicked, meaning unbelievers, are all going to be cast someday, as we see in Luke 16, 23. But, Chris, it could also mean salvation. Matthew eleven twenty seven says, All things have been entrusted to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. And moving on to verse 19, John's commanded to write about the things that are. The state that these seven churches in John's current time are in. And in chapter 4 then, verse 1, John starts writing about the things that will take place after this, meaning later. From chapter 6 through Most of the rest of the book, John will write about the series of visions he gets portraying the struggle of the church and God's victory over sin, Satan, and death from that time that he was in then until Jesus returns. Right. And to end chapter one, it's revealed that the lampstands are the seven churches. The seven stars that are revealed, Jesus says they're the angels of the seven churches. You know, this is somewhat debated, but most commentators believe This is not angelic beings, although it's possible it is, but most think it's messengers or pastors to the seven churches or possibly personifications of the seven churches. Yeah, exactly. Starting in chapter two, John writes specifically to these seven churches about their strengths and their weaknesses and their good and the bad. Because these seven churches represent the complete church, we can look for these strengths and weaknesses and good and bad things in our own churches today. So the first church is mentioned is the church that was in Ephesus. I'll read that. That's in Revelation 2, 1 to 7. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, since you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent, and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Well, Rose, the first thing I would note from this is whose words these are. These are the words of Jesus, 
It's his revelation. And we can be sure of that because the beginning of each section to the different churches uses some of the attributes that describe Jesus in chapter 1. The beginnings are all different, though, because they're specific to what each church's issue is. So the Ephesus church is the first commended for several things, their hard work, their deeds, their patient endurance, and their vigilant watch over their doctrine, meaning they didn't put up with false teachers. The Nicolaitans mentioned here, they were a heretical Christian group who live lives of unrestrained indulgence, and they practice antinomianism, which we said before is the idea that once you're saved, you're under grace, so you can do whatever you want and sin as much as you want. And we also said that's a heretical view. And there are people today who say they're Christians and who teach this. The Ephesus church hated the work of the Nicolaitans, as Jesus did, and they were patiently enduring in a city that was just full of pagan worship. You know, Paul wrote to Timothy about this church about 30 years earlier, sometime in the mid-60s. When Paul headed for Macedonia, he left Timothy there, and we're told that he did that to charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculation, according to 1 Timothy 1.3. So Paul's leaving Timothy there for that reason seems to have been a great idea. Churches need strong leadership that knows correct doctrine and theology and who won't tolerate false teaching. Absolutely. And in Revelation 2-3, Jesus also commends this church for bearing up under persecution for the sake of his name. But then Jesus has a rebuke for them. He says they abandoned the love they had at first. It's not clear whether they'd lost their love for Jesus or their love for each other. They hated the work of the Nicolaitans. And, you know, Chris, fighting for correct theology and doctrine causes strife in a church, as you and I both know. It sure does. And we do know that firsthand. You know, when Paul wrote the uh, Ephesus church, he commended them in Ephesians 1.15 for their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and their love toward all the saints. But later in that letter in chapter 4, Paul gives that church advice on how to go about teaching the truths of the Bible. He says, speak the truth in love. I mean, doing it lovingly because you love Christ. Keeping doctrine and theology biblically correct definitely causes issues. People want to believe and interpret the Bible however they want to that suits them much of the time. So when you try to point out that the Bible says something different, it gets ugly. Yes, it can. If your church has people in it who are trying to correct false teaching, but they're doing it in an unloving manner, this might be for you. If you're the one doing the correcting in an unloving manner, or if you're doing it for wrong reasons, not out of love for Christ and his word, you need to repent. Yep. But we also have to say, if you're the one being corrected in a church like this, be thankful that you're in a church where people desire correct theology and doctrine. This is supposing that your theology and doctrine are wrong. Right. This is not if you're being corrected and your the one theology right. and doctrine are right. So taking Paul's words to speak the truth in love in context tells us the reason for doing it so that God's people become mature in their understanding of the Bible. Correct theology and doctrine, Chris, it's an absolute necessity. So if you are in a church that's diligent about it and correcting for it and you're being corrected, be thankful for the correction you receive and follow Paul's advice in the letter that says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. 
Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Amen. So the remedy Jesus gives the Ephesus church in Revelation to having lost their first love is three things. Remember how they used to be, repent, and do the works they did at first. People on both sides of that aisle need to do it. Absolutely. And this comes with a warning. Their lampstand would be removed if they didn't repent. This likely means the church would have ceased to exist, or it could possibly mean the pastor would be removed. Removing the church would have left that pagan city without the light of the gospel, and that would be just as relevant today. Yes, it would. Believers, or in other words, the ones who conquer, will eat of the tree of life in the new heavens and the new earth. That was something that was banned after the fall of Adam and Eve. In Romans 8, Paul says that God loved us from before the foundation of the world and predestined us to do eternal life. So nothing can separate believers from the love of Christ. Not tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword. Paul says we are more than conquerors through Christ who loved us and gave himself for us. Amen. Okay, let's move on to the second church, the church of Smyrna. Continuing in Revelation chapter 2. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that you are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days, you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Well, this church doesn't get a rebuke, but it's not very encouraging words. (laughs) No, it doesn't get a rebuke, but you're right. They're not very encouraging words. This church was in a city that was on the sea and was an important place of business. There was money in the city, but not amongst the believers in this church. They were monetarily poor. Jesus is reminding them that they are spiritually rich. And he tells them, like you said, this isn't very pleasant, but he tells them they're going to suffer, including prison and maybe even death. Rose, this is why Jesus starts their letter out, reminding them that he is the Alpha and the Omega, and that he was dead, but is now alive. Because they and other believers until Jesus comes again need these words of encouragement for the 10 days, quote unquote, of tribulation, which could be 10 literal days, but is likely meaning a complete number of days since the number 10 represents completion. And the Smyrna church was being slandered by Jews in the city who Jesus calls here a synagogue of Satan. Well, how'd you like to be called that? (laughs) Nope. Just like he did to the Jews in John chapter 8. Jewish opposition to Christians was alleged in cases of martyrdom in accounts by Polycarp in the 2nd century, who you may have heard of, and by Pionysus in the 3rd century. The second death most likely is referring to being thrown into the lake of fire, according to Revelation 20.14 and 21.8, which is why believers are saved from it. Rose, organizations like Open Door and others monitor persecution through the world today. One report unveiled just this month says that every day, eight Christians worldwide are killed because of their faith. Unbelievable. It's crazy. 
Every week, 182 churches or Christian buildings are attacked, and every month, 309 Christians are imprisoned unjustly. Last year, 40 nations scored high enough to register very high persecution levels. This year, it's 45. And 260 million Christians are suffering severe levels of persecution, 15 million more than last year. Unbelievable. It's horrible. And you know, there might be some Americans added to that list if things go a certain yeah, way. Yeah, I, I think that it could definitely be. Yep. And on top of this list is North Korea, followed by Afghanistan, Somalia, and the list goes on. Chris, persecution is awful. We need to pray fervently for our brothers and sisters that it's happening to. And I think it's appropriate to pray that God would deliver them from their chains in light of the fact that Jesus prayed to the Father to let the cup of wrath pass from them. But he also prayed for God's will to be done. So we also need to pray that they're given the words to make the gospel known and that they declare it fearlessly like Paul, who was in chains when he writes Ephesians that they will find God's grace sufficient in their weakness and that they can rely on God's power and not on themselves, according to 2 Corinthians 12, 9. And that their faith, despite their circumstances, will reach regenerated hearts and bring others to Christ. I totally agree, Rose. And I'm thankful that you said those things because they are important. And uh, it, it does help us to know how to pray for the persecuted church in the world, other than just to be released from their suffering. We need to move on to the church in Pergamum. Revelation 2, 12 to 17 says, And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast to my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Some in the church at Pergamum were keeping the faith, even in the midst of a Roman emperor who demanded worship and multiple types of pagan worship in such an amount for Jesus to call it Satan's throne. The church even had one steadfast martyred believer named Antipas, who Jesus calls faithful witness. That's a title used for King Jesus himself. That's pretty awesome to be called that. I would say that's pretty awesome. They've been dealing with harsh persecution and some are still proclaiming the true gospel message even unto death. But there are some problems. There are. Some in the church hold to the false teaching of the Nicolaitans. And some are enticed to sin just like the Israelites were in the time of Balaam and Balak. These two names hearken us back to the Old Testament where a pagan king Balak summoned Balaam, who was a man that practiced divination, to come and lay a curse on the Israelites. God prevented him from doing that. But we find out later that Balaam did give advice to how to beat the Israelites. 
he told King Balak to use the pagan women to entice the Israelites to worship their pagan gods, which included eating meat sacrificed to idols and sexual immorality. So how were some holding to the teachings of Balaam? Well, these churchgoers were likely using food and sex to entice faithful believers to ignore God's word and sin by practicing in trade guild feasts that included worship of false gods, food, and sex. They're compromising with the world. We're going to discuss this same scenario with another church. Yeah, several commentators believe the allusion to Balaam here is a warning to unbelievers. Balaam was slain by the sword. Those who follow his ways are going to follow him in his punishment. Now let's talk about that sharp two-edged sword that's coming from Jesus' mouth. That sword is the word of God. The church at Pergamum and all churches throughout the rest of history need to rid themselves of all false teaching and anything leading them astray from the true and complete gospel message. How do they do that? We say it all the time, Rose. People probably get sick of us saying it. By getting to know God's word. Yes, we do say that all the time. We do say it all the time because that is really what we need more than anything else is knowing God. Other than Jesus, we need to know God's word. I know we sound like a broken record, but there's a reason. There are many, many churches out there who not only take scripture out of its context, but some who don't even or barely at all use the Bible at all in their teaching. A pastor's job and his first and foremost most important job is to crack the Bible open on Sunday and explain what's happening in that passage of scripture and what it means. That's called expository preaching. It's a pastor or teacher's job to teach through portions of scripture, explaining what was happening so that the people get to know the overarching story of God's plan of redemptive history. That's what's supposed to be happening in sermons. Yep. And the model from that comes from Jesus himself on the road to Emmaus. Luke records this walk in chapter 24, verses 13 to 32. Chris, that was Jesus doing expository preaching. He's the example preachers and teachers should be following. Exactly. And the solution is the same today as it was then for neglecting to study scripture. The solution is repent and then start doing it. Jesus's threat to come soon with the sword of his mouth is not talking about his second coming. No. If they don't repent, Jesus promises to in some way providentially intervene directly and do it himself through the sharp two-edged sword of his mouth using his word. Hebrews 4, 12, and 13 says, The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. We're going to give an account someday for this. That's right. Now, the believer doesn't need to fear the sword, but they will be disciplined by it. Believers are convicted of sin and their need for repentance by scripture. And if you're not in a church where you're actually learning about the whole Bible, you need to change what's happening there. And if you can't change what's happening there, you need to get out and go somewhere where you can be fed. And speaking of being fed and to finish up what Jesus said to the Pergamum church, the hidden manna, something that only the high priest had access to, is a type of the true manna of heaven, which is Christ. All who feed on him will live. 
The white stone is mostly believed to be some allusion to the Urim and Thurim, which is also something the high priest had access to. And it's thought because of that to indicate the priesthood of victorious Christians. The victorious Christians are believers. Jesus has already won the victory for them. I'll give that a hearty amen. That's where we need to leave off for today. But we're doing something special this week. We are giving everyone a bonus episode of No Trash, Just Truth. Chris, we're going to have a special bonus episode that's going to post tomorrow, Tuesday, and we're going to cover the rest of the seven churches in Revelation. We are. And hey, all these transcripts to these podcasts can be found on www.buzzsprout.com. We'll post the link to the transcript. I'll post it in the show notes. Have a blessed day, everybody. 